0: Our sermon today, if you'll please turn to 1 Peter, the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1. 1 Peter, chapter 1. I'll read for us verses 3 through 9. 1 Peter, chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. You may be seated.
1: Amen. Well, let me just begin by saying that it is so wonderful to be back in my own church. Um, it always amazes me when I preach at other churches. It just uh, amazes me how God has designed the body of Christ and how Unique every church is. Are these lights up all the way? They are okay. Just making sure. <clears throat> um, but uh, you know, our church is very unique in that it is a it is a new church. It's a small church, but it's a biblical church. And our church really blesses me because, you know, above everything, we want to honor God by honoring His Word and making His Word preeminent in our lives. And I'm just grateful that. I come up here today knowing that you don't want me to come up here and crack jokes and and tell stories and do backflips off the stage or drive Harleys on the stage. You want me to preach the word, and um, I I really have nothing else to offer you anyway, so um, I'm just grateful that I'm in a church that wants to hear the voice of God in his scripture because that really is where the power of the Christian life is. It's in his word. His word is what changes us and transforms us. Never, ever, ever take that for granted. Never desire, oh, that we would do other things. And I'm not saying that we can't get better. We can't get a better worship team. We can't get a better, you know, some better activities going. I'm just saying I don't care in light of all ministry because I've seen a lot of ministry. I was in a church recently where they had an arcade and they had all these video games for the kids. And I'm just thinking, wow, is that why God gave us his word, so that we can play Xbox instead? You know, w- there's something about making the word of God preeminent, and that's something that needs to be intentionally done in a church, because you can lose that. You can lose sight of that, and that's something that we can just never. It's non-negotiable. It's something that we can never compromise in our church. It's just digging into the word of God. So let's start getting back into Peter. We've been preaching a series of sermons from the first chapter of Peter that I've, ent- I've entitled The Hope of Heaven, The Hope of Heaven. And uh, today I want to zero in on verses 6 and 7. So let's pray and we will jump right in. Let's pray together. Well, Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for your word And we thank you, Lord, for the spirit that is pleased to move through the text of scripture into our own lives as he applies his word powerfully to us, Lord. And we just pray, God, that you would open up our eyes to the reality of the various tensions that exist in the Christian life. And Lord, that we would see that our labor is not in vain in the Lord, and that all of our trials and all of our laboring and all of our toil and all of our suffering, is not in vain, but everything plays a meticulous part in your plan for our lives and in your plan overall, your redemptive plan for your great glory. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I want to talk today about true perseverance. If you remember, because I know that you guys all have photographic memories, but you remember that I've been using that little phrase true or that word true as a launching pad for each one of these subject matters. So we looked at true salvation as really the entry point to the hope of heaven. You can't have hope of heaven if you don't have hope of salvation in this life. You can't just look to the future of heaven if you don't have the reality of salvation here and now. And so we started out with True salvation And then we moved on from there And we talked about the fact that God in this true salvation Has given us a true treasure That is a treasure that does not fade away That does not fade away It is imperishable And we can't lose it like you can lose Every other thing in this life That you will ever accumulate in this world You will lose that You are guaranteed to lose that Moth are going to come in. Thieves are going to come in to steal. Rust is going to destroy. But God has given us an imperishable inheritance in this great salvation. And, in the, and that is what we're hoping in. And then we also talked about the fact that God has also given us true faith, that it is a persevering faith. And that's what I want to zero in on now, is this doctrine of perseverance. Perseverance This is something that we have to think about both um, specifically or critically and we have to think about it spiritually. We've gotta be careful how we think about the doctrine of the perseverance or even historically, the reformers called this the the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. And some have modified that and said, no, it should accurately be called the preservation of the saints because that really stresses a little bit more of the work of god to protect us and to keep us and to preserve us and no doubt we have to think critically about it because if we don't well then we can make errors in our theology and if you make errors in your theology it will certainly lead to errors in your life errors in your thinking will always lead to errors in your living and so we have to think very, very critically about it, but we also have to enter into it with a spiritual mind. That is to say, we need to have a spiritual perspective of persevering, especially in relationship to our trials. So, what I mean by having a spiritual perspective of this is that we think of the doctrine of the preservation of the saints, the perseverance of the saints, with the mind of Christ, that is, as opposed or versus the mind that is set on the flesh. The difference, I believe, is going to be the difference between fatalism on one hand and Calvinism on the other. Fatalism, of course, is describing that idea that everything in life is determined in such a way that ultimately it is unimportant and futile. And so, therefore, you had Even in biblical times, you had the Platonic philosophers like the Epicureans and even the Stoics who were such determinists that they thought, well, the reason you don't show emotion, that's why they called them Stoics. You've heard people say, don't be so Stoic, right? They were emotionless because they thought, look, what is emotion? Emotion is vain. It's futile. It's worth nothing. There's nothing to get emotional about. There's nothing to be happy about, and there's nothing to be sad about. Everything is predetermined, and what will be, will be. But that is an unhealthy balance to life, obviously. Fatalism is an antithetical to biblical theology and to the doctrine of the sovereignty of God and of the persevering of His people. If we look at it that way, then you turn a whole slew of verses into trivial passages of Scripture. For example... The Apostle Paul is famous for saying that he worked hard in the ministry. He uses this word striving. He was striving according to God's power. And so he had a proper view of his trials. He had a proper view of his life, that life is worth working at. It's worth fighting at. It's worth laboring for. And actually, just to pause here on this word striving, agonizo, it's where we get our word, the word agonize. Jesus said, uh, strive to enter the narrow door. Agonize to enter into the kingdom of God. Let me ask you a question today. Do you feel like you're agonizing today in the Christian life? And if you don't today, have you ever been in agony in the Christian life? And I tell you what, if you haven't before, let me make you a promise. This is one of your Bible promise probably not found in a bible promise book but this is one of the bible's promises is that you will one day know what it means to agonize to press into the kingdom of god to enter into the narrow door that's why paul says that life is like a fight 1st corinthians chapter 9 life is like a competition these are all different synonyms or different nuances of that greek word that means to Ultimately, to agonize. Paul talked about the whole life as a battle. You remember? He says, I have fought the good fight. There it is there. He has agonized. He has, he has fought. That's what, how he described his whole life in the service of Christ. We're also told about Epaphras, that he labored in prayer. That's that word. He labored in prayer. So our trials are not vain, and that's why... 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says this. This is one of these verses that you just gotta constantly look at and think over and believe in and trust in. It says, therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. That is to say that your depression is telling you is speaking to you, heresy. When you're depressed or when you're downcast or melancholy, you don't feel like being abundant in the work of the Lord. You don't feel like being immovable and steadfast. You feel like caving in. But according to this passage, none of our work, none of our labor, none of our toil is in vain in the Lord. When you're at work, it's not in vain. When you're dealing with that coworker that's just getting under your skin, it's not in vain. In the marriage where it's just twisting and turning you every which way, when you're raising your kids that are just flying off the, you know, they're going their own way and they're just causing you great turmoil, no, it's not in vain. Nothing is in vain. Um, Philip Ryken He is the pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church. Philip Ryken recently wrote a commentary on Ecclesiastes. And you know what is the predominant idea in the book of Ecclesiastes? Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. All is what? Vanity. Interestingly enough, he titled his commentary, Why Everything Matters. Why everything? The book of Ecclesiastes is designed in such a way as to say you can't live like this. There's more to life than everything Solomon is experiencing here, everything he's recounting. There's more to life than money, women, possessions, material possessions, fame, power, sex, pleasure. There's more to life than everything this world has to offer at a click of a button. There's got to be more to life than this, because Solomon said, I've been there, I've done that, and it's empty. And so what Ecclesiastes, and I believe the whole message of the Bible is that Ecclesiastes really is about how Christ makes our life meaningful and full and rich. Now, let's look at this passage here on true perseverance, knowing that our trials are not in vain, they're not futile, but they are, they are meaningful. Every bit of it has meaning. Look at verses 6 and 7. Speaking about the salvation, he says, and we'll come back to that, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So amazing. If we don't have a genuine hope, then we likewise will not have genuine perseverance. And if we will not genuinely persevere in our faith, we will not have a genuine hope. If we fool ourselves that the Christian life, therefore, is just a walk in the park, then for certain what will happen, according to Scripture, is that we will become disenchanted with the Christian life, and we will go back to the ease and back to the pleasures, the fleeting pleasures of this world. You can count on it, because Jesus' parables always gave some sort of gnomic truth. In other words some sort of timeless principle that is teaching us something. And that is what the par- the parable of the sower is teaching us. That when we get disenchanted with the word of God when we get disenchanted with the kingdom of God we will go right back into the world. All we need is a little trial. All we need is a little anxiety. All we need is a little persecution. And we're right back in the world. And that's why it's Paramount that you be one of those upon whom the seed fell on good soil. Good soil. There's three soils represented there in the parable of the sower, but there's really only two. Good and bad. Period. There's good soil. There's bad soil. There are true converts, false converts. There's genuine salvation and false salvation. There is no in between. You're either a sheep or you're a goat. That's it. And let me point out three things here about our persevering, how we do it. Number one, we we are to persevere with joy. And that's why Peter begins by saying, in this you greatly rejoice. You greatly rejoice. But the question is, is what is this this? What is this in the context? I hope you see that in your Bibles. It says, in this. That's important for you because you have to identify with that joy. You have to identify with it. What is the this that you rejoice in? And I think it's going back to not one antecedent, but an antecedent idea, a concept, namely the The fact that we are being protected by the power of God for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That's what we rejoice in. The fact that one day our salvation will be fully revealed, fully disclosed, fully given to us, and we're going to receive the end of our salvation. The end of our salvation. The salvation of our souls. The end of our faith, as Peter says. So, we rejoice in that salvation or the other way he called he 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 spoke about that salvation is we rejoice in a living hope it's the same as our imperishable inheritance that will not fade away that's what we rejoice in we're rejoicing in the certainty of salvation can there be anything greater than that Right? than to know we are saved. You're saved. You're going to stay saved, and you're going to be saved at the end of the age. You are going to be saved from the wrath of God, and there could be nothing greater than that. There, there could be nothing that would gladden your heart more than to know for certain in the depth of your soul, I am saved. I'm going to be saved because I deserve to be damned. I deserve to perish. I deserve hell. I deserve torment. I deserve to be in God's prison, where there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth, where all the other criminals are going to go. I was a criminal, and I deserve to be, to be thrown in right with them, to be shackled in God's prison called hell for all eternity but you are saved you see how glorious it's glorious when you let yourself see it for what it is and we so easily forget and one of the reasons why I am so adamant about talking about trials is that trials have this peculiar attribute they, they cause a, spirit, a spiritual amnesia A biblical amnesia. You forget everything you learned with one little trial. It's like somebody clicks a button and all that Calvinism you were talking about at church the other day just goes right out the window. You forget everything about the sovereignty of God. You forget everything about the benevolence of God, the goodness of God, the protection of God, the preservation of the saints, the doctrine of perseverance. You forget all of that. And it's just one trial that can bring you there. Therefore, this joy is two things. It is a satisfying joy, and it is a sustaining joy. It satisfies us, and it sustains us the whole life long. It's beautiful. Rejoicing in yourself. It's to rejoice, or, or the other way I could say it, it's to be satisfied in the things that the world cannot be satisfied in. We know what the world is satisfied in. Turn with me to Romans. Turn to Romans chapter 13. And I'm going to read to you Peter's words in chapter 4, this small little phrase. He says, He says that, that they would live the rest of their life or the rest of their time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. See that? In other words, epithumia is the word that means passion, lust, desire. Everybody has it. Everybody does it. We all lust or desire something. And so the word that 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 can have either a good or a bad connotation depending on contexts is directed either towards the worldly lust, the worldly desires or the godly desires. So Romans 13, he, Paul and Peter totally agree on this pursuit of a supreme, superior joy. Listen to what Paul says in verse 11. Do this knowing the time, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now, salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone. The day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us, let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity or sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. Verse 13, actually, the verse that led to Augustine's conversion. Conversion. He heard a voice, as it were telling him, pick up and read. And he said, whatever verse I read, that's the verse that I need to read. And he opens it up. He played Bible roulette. Don't do this. But he did it. And he opened up to this verse. I just got to point that out. That's a big historical event. The conversion of Augustine, one of the greatest theologians of the Christian church. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. As we think about what to... Uh, how to do that, we might begin by observing that what the world takes delight in, the Apostle Paul calls darkness. Strangely enough, he calls it being asleep. Everyone, all the, the all, every sinner on planet earth, the whole course of this evil world system, is under the lap of the evil one, and they are asleep. They're sleeping in their sin as they revel in the flesh. They are asleep. They're not awakened to the reality that in a very short time and a very brief interval of time, catastrophic things await them. <laughs> they are totally blind to this. That's so why the Bible calls unbelief, being blind, blinded, being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And so we have to have the right view of these things. We have to see them for what they are, the world's joys. They are darkness. They are sleep. They are the flesh. And conversely, they are an inferior pursuit of joy. But we have a superior pursuit of joy. Our joy is in an eternal reality, our eschatological reality of heaven. And so we have to persevere, and we have to do it with joy, in a superior joy in our salvation. And we also have to persevere with trials. Now, this is very important because it balances us out. It's not as if the Christian life is just joy, joy, joy all the time, happiness all the time. You're always laughing. You're always joking. You're always lighthearted. No, the Bible, one of the reasons why I love the Bible so much is because the Bible is for realists. It's a realistic book. It knows. It knows that the joy that it's talking about is in a, it's a joy that is lived out in the context of real trials. So we have to persevere with trials and I say that intentionally we have to persevere with trials because it is not an option it is a it is something that is ordained or appointed to us by the sovereign hand of God and actually you see it right here in the text and then you see it unfolding in the rest of the book of Peter Peter says for example or this is why Peter says, even though now going back to First Peter chapter uh, chapter one verse six, he says, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. You see, the the point of it is, is that it is necessary. As a matter of fact, it uses a very interesting construction. It uses a participial phrase in a conditional clause. Let me try to explain that. That to me was huge It put a big smile on my face. <laughs> a participial conditional phrase. This is our life right here. And so let me explain it to you. What I mean by participle is it it shows us the attending circumstance in which we persevere. Persevering this way. It's it the participle is the word necessary. It literally means being Continually necessary. (laughs) And then he uses the conditional. It's just the word if. It's a question. It's a rhetorical question. So literally, you can translate it, it is continually necessary. That's the way the continual or the conditional clause works. The first class conditional phrase means it assumes something to be true. In other words, it's like Peter stating a fact instead of asking a question. It's not. If maybe this will happen to you, it is certain. And the fact that he uses a present active participle means it's going to go on and on and on. Don't expect it to ever, ever go away. It's like Calvin said, the whole life, sanctification is a lifelong agonizing process. That's what it is. And so we're called to persevere in the context of trials, in the context of suffering and and I have good news for you. The whole Christian life is about partnering and participating with Christ. You partner with Christ or excuse me, patterning. That's I knew I should have wrote it down. I knew I'd, I I try to remember but let me get it right. It's both partnering and patterning. This is why I say that because in the theology of Peter If you look, for example, at Peter chapter 4, verse 1, just look there very quickly with me, the whole Christian life is lived not just participating with Christ, partnering with Christ in his sufferings, fellowshipping, Paul says, in his sufferings, but also patterning our life with him, patterning it like Christ. It says here in chapter four, verse one, therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves. Make a big deal out of that phrase right there. Arm yourself with the same purpose because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So therefore, I believe it's talking about the death of Christ. It says, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lust of man but for the will of God. And so, this phrase, Arm yourself. It's the only place in the whole Bible, in the whole Greek New Testament, where the Greek word arm, equip. This is what's very interesting about this word, ennoia. It's the only time that anybody uses it. Peter, that's it. Peter is the only one that used it. And it, according to one lexicon, the BDAG, it translates it like this. It says, equip yourself with the same insight. Because it has everything to do with knowledge. It's not telling you to arm yourself in the sense of grab a weapon. It's telling you to arm yourself. It's telling you adopt a worldview. That's what it's saying. Adopt a worldview, a perspective of life. What's that perspective? The same perspective that Christ had. And that means that our trials, far from being in vain, are going somewhere. They're accomplishing something, namely redemption. The only difference is is that his death results in redemption for everyone. Our death simply means we inherit our redemption. We get our salvation even as we have studied. Isn't it remarkable that the whole Christian life can be summed up as learning from a crucified Messiah how to suffer correctly? That's what Christianity is. And this is exactly what Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18, all the way to the end of chapter 2, this is what he's talking about. That what the world regards as weak, foolish, worthless, it is mocked, degraded, blasphemed. This is what God's wisdom is. A crucified Messiah. And we learn from him not just that Jesus died on the cross to save us, but that Jesus died on the cross to show us an example of how to live. That's just glorious, absolutely glorious, to know that he's he's been there. The book of Hebrews calls him our trailblazer, our forerunner. He's our leader. He's our example He's the one, he's our hero of faith. You want to talk about the heroes of faith? Hebrews chapter 11, our hero is, there's no greater here than our hero. He is the apostle of our faith. He is the author of our faith as well. It just simply means that when we suffer like Christ, we will not, according to 1 Peter chapter 4, we will not suffer for our own stupidity, our own foolishness, our own sin, but actually there is a way to suffer that will glorify God. Let me read this to you. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 15 says, Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. Therefore, the context of the book of 1 Peter is persecution. Christians suffering not just because they're Republican or Democrat, not just because they're you know they believe in evolution or, or creation, they're suffering because of the name. They're suffering for Jesus' name. Therefore, the joy of the believer not only satisfies, it, satisfies us, but also sustains us until we reach our future glory. And this is exactly the way that Peter ends the book. If you go to chapter 5, verse 10, he says, after you have suffered a little while. Isn't that great how he talks about that? Some of these people in the diaspora that Peter's writing to who are aliens and scattered abroad, some of them, no doubt, were martyred for their faith. There is devastation going on in these congregations. I mean, imagine if you went home today And one of your family members was martyred. Think about that. No dad to come home to. No mom to come home to. What happened? She died for Jesus. There is real suffering going on here. And he says, after you suffered a little while. (laughs) That's it. The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, he will perfect and confirm and strengthen and establish you. Isn't that glorious? Glorious. Man, I tell you what, we really do live for the reality of another world. Don't put all your eggs in in this basket. Don't put all your hopes in this life, folks. Don't look for all of your joy, all of your wealth, all of your health, all of your prosperity. Don't look, for, don't look for family to be an end of itself, to be a self-sustaining joy in and of itself that family is all that matters. This is all that matters is our little world in our family, in our marriage, in my money. I tell you, it is gonna go away. God will strip it from you because he wants to leave you clutching to only one enduring supreme joy. Him, His glory, His salvation, His presence. In His presence is fullness of joy. All other joys leak. They leak out. They spill over. They spill out, they drain out, they wane. They run out. Are you catching up with the adjectives? It's temporal, but not the joy that we have in his presence. And therefore, we're called to persevere in the midst of these trials, looking towards this future glory. And I have one more thing to talk about, and that is persevering not just with, with joy, with trials, but also, therefore, persevering with purpose. We're to persevere with purpose because we know that our trials, our testing of our faith is doing one thing. It is purifying our faith. It is purifying our faith. Look back to chapter one again. He says here, it is necessary you've been distressed by various trials so that, all the little so that's are so important in the Bible, so that the proof of your faith Being more precious than gold which is perishable even though tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That really should be its own sermon. But I will not do that to you. We will get it in there. I think what's so glorious to me is You want to see the dignity of your trials? You want to see the fact that your trials are actually doing something, accomplishing something, going somewhere? They're not vain. It's not futile. It's all not for nothing. Paul compares our testing time with something of great
0: value,
1: gold. I mean, this is a universal reality, right? If you were a missionary, you wouldn't have a hard time, you know, crossing the culture contextualizing this for people gold is a universal language for wealth I mean even today people are scrambling around in a turbulent global economy trying to find some sense of security somewhere couldn't find it in real estate maybe we'll find it in gold maybe that will give us a secure future Um, he says that our faith is like gold It is being tested. It is being tried. The only difference is is that gold is perishable. Therefore, he uses a comparative to say it is more precious. You see that? It is more precious than gold because it endures for eternal life. And don't despise the purifying of your faith. Your faith is being refined in these trials. Your f- suffering, as what uh, Thomas Schreiner says, suffering functions as the crucible of faith. It is where your faith is being tested. It is where your faith is going to be refined. It's going to grow. God has one goal for your Christian life. You ready? This is what it is. It took me a long time to realize this. This is the one thing that God wants to do in your life. Grow your Faith. You know what the devil wants to do? Just one thing. He wants to eat your faith. He is like a lion going around, prowling to see who's wandering at the edge of the pack that he can take him out and devour his faith and destroy him. You remember what Jesus told Peter? Peter? I don't want to say lucky because that's not the word. You are so fortunate. You ran into me again because Satan has asked for you by name. He has asked to sift you like wheat. He wants to toss you in the air and scatter your ashes all over the world. He wants to destroy your soul. But I have prayed for you. The intercession of Christ is the only thing keeping Peter from Eternal obliteration, annihilation. Well, no, that's not theologically accurate. You know what I mean? Destruction, doom, completely being undone had Christ not prayed for him. So God wants to protect your faith. He wants to grow your faith. He wants to increase your faith. Satan would want to have it the other way. The last thing, not only is our faith to be a purified faith, that's God's aim but also he wants us to have a praise worthy faith a praise worthy faith a faith that is praised who is it praised by it will result watch this it will it will find it will be found to result in praise who is praising who here it seems and most commentators agree the praise that he's talking about is the praise of God about you praising you praising your faith being grateful God is going to exalt over our faith this is not uncommon to the Bible Uh, Romans chapter 2 verse 29 but the Jew Here we go, verse 29. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not of the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. You better want God to praise you. (laughs) There is a sense, I know that sounds almost blasphemous. It's not the same praise that we give God, glorifying Him for being God, It's not that kind of praise. It's speaking well of you, approving of you, saying I accept you because you have genuine faith. You are accepted. And genuine faith will result in this eschatological approval of us so that we will hear. If you want to see a good picture of what this approval sounds like, it will sound something like this. Jesus says in Matthew 25, 21, the master will say to him, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful in few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. That will be the greatest day of our lives. And we will realize once and for all that as we receive the crown of glory, which the Lord will give to everyone who loves his appearing, then we will see what our trials were about. Testing us, pressuring us, crushing us even, in order to refine us and to prove us to have genuine faith. And therefore, when you have that genuine faith and true perseverance, then you will have, truly, truly have the hope of heaven residing Within you. Faith is a gift. God gives it freely by His sovereign grace, and perseverance reveals what we did with that gift. Let's pray together. Father, there is no greater gift than the gift of your Son, and there is no greater gift than the gift of faith in order to believe in the Son. And Lord, we look to you to increase our faith, to grow our faith, Lord, because in this world we will have many tribulations, even as Jesus, our Lord, has promised. We know that it's through many trials that we must enter the kingdom. We know that it is appointed for us. We are destined to suffer. It cannot be otherwise. But yet, Lord, our suffering is not the result of fatalistic processes That are random, senseless, and vain. But our suffering is ordered by the hand of a good, sovereign, and merciful God. And so we're grateful, Lord, that we can can take your yoke upon us. Your yoke is easy. It is easy to suffer in this life when we know what our suffering is about. And Lord, it is unthinkable, it is incomprehensible. How anyone could suffer through this life without hope. But Lord, you have given us hope. And so Lord, we pray that you would help us to fan into flame that hope. To keep it fresh and alive in our hearts by faith. In Jesus' name, amen.